Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we sure want you to have a Bible. And there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along and read. And uh, then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Hebrews chapter 8. We'll pick things up in verse 6. But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and none shall teach uh, his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, the least of them to the greatest. And this, verse 11, has its fullest fulfillment in the millennial reign of Christ. But all of this is available to us, of course, as Christians today. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And in that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Probably a reference to the fact of the destruction of the temple, which was just right around the corner in 70 A.D. following the writing of this letter, which kind of just erased uh, so much that was uh, surrounding that uh, old covenant. No need for it, because now there's a new covenant. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And we pray that your word would not only come to us in our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength, not in word only, but in demonstration of your spirit and in power. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to enlarge our understanding of how great this salvation is that you have provided for us, the wonder of this new covenant in Jesus' blood, and then as a result to give us an even greater appreciation of him. Lord, we, we live today and we think, We could not appreciate Jesus and you more than we do, and yet we know tomorrow we will even more so. And so we pray for that to happen in each of our hearts through the ministry of your word by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our Savior today, Lord. Thank you for this covenant. Teach us about it this morning, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The theme of this letter to the Hebrews is a very, very beautiful theme. And simply put, it is that Jesus is 
better. And that word better is used twice, as you notice in verse 6. And it's a word that's used continually through the book of Hebrews. And the writer has already declared and established the fact that Jesus is better than the prophets. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is a better high priest than Aaron, the first high priest. And he is even better, as we've seen, than Abraham. And in this passage that we're studying here this morning, the Holy Spirit now brings forth the fact that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. So that raises the question, what in the world is a covenant? And a covenant is very simply an agreement or a contract between two parties, a contract that defines the the conditions upon which their relationship with one another is going to occur. So, for instance, you have um, two businesses that sign a contract or an agreement with one another. They're now going to come into some kind of a partnership or a mutual uh, work that they're going to be involved in. And the contract contains all of the information that's required uh, and, and the demands that are made upon each of the businesses so that it's clear to everyone so that that relationship can be mutually beneficial to both of the businesses. And so nobody gets surprised later on. They know going on in, this is the relationship we want, and this contract or this covenant tells us what the expectations are of one party toward the other so it can be everything that it needs to be. Now, in the Old Testament, God established a covenant or contract, so to speak, with the children of Israel. And that covenant was called uh, the Law of Moses. And they established the Law of Moses in order to define what was required of the children of Israel in order for them to have a blessed, prosperous relationship with the Lord. And all of that can be encapsulated really in one verse in the law itself, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, where God declared, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. So it's a conditional. It's an if and then relationship. If you are this, then then this allows me to be that. And so it's an if-then relationship under the old covenant. And so the intimacy... And the health of their relationship with God was based supremely upon their doing, upon their obedience uh, to the commandments of God. Now, the covenant that Jesus has provided us with that is declared here to be a better covenant or a better basis for our relationship with God, in this new covenant, our relationship with God is based upon what God has done for us in Christ. And Jesus put it this way in establishing the Lord's Supper. On the night before the cross, when he was about to be crucified, he established uh, the Lord's Supper with, with the disciples, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. In other words, what he was saying is that our salvation is given to us as a gift. 
We receive it by faith. We receive it through this thing called trust. We trust in God, and and He gives it to us. And then we spend the rest of our lives living a life that pleases God by obeying Him. And we obey God as Christians not in order to earn something from Him, but we do so in response to how good He's been to us in freely saving us and in loving us. So the old covenant was do, do, do. The new covenant is done, done, done. The old covenant was obey to live, and the new covenant is live to obey. And those are two entirely different qualities of experience with God. The old covenant was obey in order to live, and the new covenant that we're under in Christ is live to obey. Once we're born again, our life is lived with a desire to obey the Lord. And so this salvation that we have in Christ, this new covenant, it imputes righteousness to us, and then it makes our obedience to God a response to what He has first done to us. And because our salvation is based upon Jesus' sacrifice and, and His blood alone, our relationship with God isn't iffy, it isn't conditional, it isn't up and down, it's never in doubt because Jesus is stable. We are unstable. Anytime we bring something to salvation, if salvation was a free gift from God or any time a salvation is based upon uh, God giving us, uh, 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 you know, starting something, saying, here's, here's my part in the salvation and then here's your part in the salvation, then it's an iffy salvation because we're iffy people. So he makes salvation a free gift for us. And you say, well then we all become uh, disobedient and we don't care about walking with God or being holy because He's already given us salvation and so who cares? It doesn't work that way. When you receive a gift like that from God, then the desire is to bless His heart in return by being obedient to His Word, not to earn from Him, but in just a, uh, a spirit of gratitude, a heart of gratitude. Now, the Old Testament word for covenant is an interesting one, and primarily it means a cutting. That's what it means in the Old Testament. You see covenant, and it, and it translates cutting. And that, that word comes from an Old Testament practice and an ancient practice at that time that when two parties would enter into a covenant... What they would do is they would sacrifice an animal. They would cut the animal in half, lay equal parts of the half on each side of a path, and leave a walkway between the sacrifice. The two parties would agree to a covenant or a contract, and then to seal that contract, each of them would walk down the path between the sacrifice. And that was how you sealed a sacrifice. You remember, though, when God made a covenant with Abraham, that God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars are in the sky. 
And not only that, not only am I going to make a great nation of you, but I'm going to bring those people into the promised land, into a land that I have prepared for them. And when God made that promise to Abraham, Abraham believed it, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So God then ordered Abraham, according to the custom of the day, ordered him to take several different animals. They were sacrificed, cut in half, laid on either side, as was, as was the custom in that ancient day. They were laid on either side. And then what God did in establishing that covenant with Abraham is he did not allow Abraham to walk that path. God alone walked through that path between those sacrifices. And what he was communicating to Abraham was this. This covenant that I have made with you has nothing to do with you, to your faithfulness, to your anything. This covenant is based on my word. It's based upon what I have told you and who I am. And so, and God could not have made a more one-sided, God-sided covenant with Abraham than the one that he made. You are going to become the father of a great nation. That nation is going to have its own land, a promised land that I'm going to bring them into. And the fact that that is going to happen is not dependent upon you in any way. This is not a cooperative effort. That's going to happen because I promised it and I am going to do it. And thus, that covenant was going to be a sure covenant. In the same way, concerning salvation, when Jesus introduced the Lord's Supper on the night before his crucifixion, and he declared, this cup, which is, is the grape juice that speaks of his blood, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the idea is, the covenant I am making with people now is based on my blood and my blood alone. That our salvation is not based upon his death upon the cross plus our good works. Our salvation is not based upon Jesus' death upon the cross, his sacrifice, and our anything. We bring nothing to that salvation. The salvation that Jesus has provided mankind with is a finished salvation. That's why he cried out on the cross, it is finished. And when something is finished, it doesn't need to be added to. And further, any attempt to add to something that's finished only mars or ruins the finished thing. So Jesus was saying, this salvation is based upon my sacrifice, my blood, and my blood alone. And in doing so, he has provided us with a salvation that, uh, that, uh, uh, that cannot be any more God-centered and God-focused and God-loaded toward God than it already is. There is nothing we bring to this. And so this, this salvation 
couldn't be more one-sided, more God-centered than God has made it. It's based completely on that finished work of Christ upon the cross. And because our salvation is based solely on what Christ has done for us, rather than what we're doing for God, it's a sure salvation. You take salvation, if Jesus said, this covenant that we have with one another is based upon my blood and <clears throat> and you being able to climb the Himalayas or whatever it might be. Anytime you add us into it, now you've got something that's no longer sure. But it's sure because it's based upon what Christ has done. Now, the writer tells us that this covenant that we have based upon what Jesus has done for us, is better. So he not only tells us we have a new covenant, a new contract or agreement or means of relationship with God in Christ, but also this new covenant provides us with better promises. And in verses 6 through 13, he lays out four very specific things that speak, uh, that come to his mind by the Holy Spirit that makes uh, the covenant that we have with God through Jesus better than the Old Testament covenant based upon the law of Moses. And the first thing that he brings out is in verses 10 and 11, or 9 and 10, where essentially he declares that the law of Moses did not supply the power needed to obey it, while the covenant that we have, the better covenant that we have, in Christ, it provides us with that power. That was one of the that was the one of the great weaknesses of the law of Moses was the fact that it was wonderful and that it made God's will known to the people. The law of Moses made up of six hundred and thirteen commands. And so you would read those commands and you would read the law of Moses and you would have a greater understanding of God of His holiness, how wonderful He was, and and what was acceptable behavior before Him, the right definitions of right and wrong and good and bad, all of these things. But there was no power, no supernatural power given by God to then obey those commandments. And, and so that's what He's communicating in verse 9 when He writes, because they did not continue in my covenant, and they didn't continue in that covenant because the power wasn't, uh, part of the reason was the power wasn't there to obey that. And so the Old Testament law promised to bless the obedient. It did that, but it didn't supply the power to obey. You say, well, that sounds pretty unfair to me, no part of God. Well, it isn't, and I'll tell you why. Because the Old Testament law was never intended to provide salvation. Salvation, old covenant, new covenant, has always been on the basis of faith. Concerning Abraham, because of his faith, it was accounted unto righteousness. Old Testament folks became saints and were saved by virtue of looking ahead in faith to the Messiah who was going to come. We're saved by looking back upon that same Messiah. 2,000 years through history and what Jesus did for us. And so the law of Moses, and this was the great mistake that the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' time did, is they took the law of Moses, 
they determined God has given us these 613 laws so that if we will obey these laws, we can earn our way or human merit our way or good our way into heaven. We can make ourselves acceptable for the holiness of heaven. God never intended the law of Moses to ever do that because the law of Moses can't do that. And so the law of Moses was given in order to make the children of Israel a unique and different and separated people at that time in their history. They're surrounded by paganism, surrounded by debauchery and wickedness of the Gentile nations all around them. God said, I want you to obey these commandments It will make you distinctive in the world and make them recognize that the God that they serve is, that you serve is different than the God that they serve. So it was to keep them, it was a a means of safety for them. But it was also given, the law was in order to expose them and us as sinners in need of a Savior. So as they would try to keep those 613 commandments, they would come to the conclusion that nobody can keep those 613 commandments. You can't even keep the Ten Commandments. That's just ten. We'll drop drop 603 of them. We'll just narrow it down to ten. Nobody keeps the Ten Commandments. People say, I'm going to heaven because I keep the Ten Commandments. Let me hang out with you for half a day. You don't keep the Ten Commandments. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. Nobody else keeps the Ten Commandments. Because the law was given in order to expose us as sinners in need of a Savior so that when God sent His Savior into the world, we wouldn't be all goofed up using the law as a means to get to heaven, but that the law would have done the job that it was supposed to do to prepare us for a Savior that God was going to send. And that's why the Jewish nation missed Jesus uh, by and large in His first coming. They were engaged in this futile attempt to keep the law of Moses for salvation rather than saying, boy, nobody can keep this law. I sure hope God sends His Messiah soon. And when He sends the Messiah... We will glom onto him like crazy. They didn't because they were misunderstanding the law and misusing it. And it was intended to prepare them uh, with their recognition as being sinners in need of a Savior. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. It reveals us to be guilty and to be sinners. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's important to realize there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses, but there's something wrong with us. And that's why... Uh, He declares there at the beginning of verse 8, because finding fault with them, God never found fault with the law. If salvation could come by keeping a law, the law of Moses was the law to be kept. The problem was, was with them. There's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. 
If salvation could have come by virtue of keeping the law, then that law would have been the law that could have done it. But the law simply reveals us to be lawbreakers, incapable of having a close, intimate, ongoing, unbroken relationship with God on the basis of law. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul wrote, he said, For what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. But I, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. And thus when Jesus spoke of the new covenant in his blood, based upon his sacrifice, none of this ought to have taken anyone by surprise. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, as he quotes this lengthy section from the book of Jeremiah, which was written 800 years after the giving of the law, where God cannot make it any clearer than he does here, that the first covenant was always intended by God to be replaced by a second and a better covenant. Why would he replace the first covenant except that he was going to replace it with something better? And so they shouldn't have been surprised that God, nor should anyone today be surprised, that the old covenant uh, has been has gone by the wayside and a new covenant has been established, a better covenant upon the sacrifice of Christ. Now, the second of those four things that make up the better promises that are a part of this covenant, found in verse 10, closely related to what we're talking about, and that is the law of Moses made the will of God known, but it failed to provide a supernatural motivation for obeying the law. And so while this better covenant that we have in Christ supplies us with a supernatural motivation to know God and to obey God as a Christian. So one of the reasons that the children of Israel struggled a little bit in order to keep the law of Moses is they did not have supernatural power to keep it in the way that we do as Christians by the Holy Spirit, but they also did not have the kind of motivation, a supernatural motivation, desire to obey God's Word that is a part of our life because of the Holy Spirit. And so that Holy Spirit comes into our life when we're born again, and He not only provides us with a power to obey God's Word, but he provides us with the want to, the desire to obey God's Word. Again, this beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2, Paul encapsulates it this way. He said, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives... And and when we give our lives to Christ, it's a miracle. That's what's called a spiritual birth. God comes into our lives. He brings and provides us now with the power to obey the Word of God, a power that is so great and so personal that it would have made the Old Testament saints smack their lips, longing for it if they'd known what we have 
but also supplying us with the will and the desire to obey God's Word. And that's what that covenant supplies us, this new covenant with both of those things. And the fact that we, we have a supernatural desire or motivation to know God and to walk with God and to obey God, that's the testimony of every uh, single Christian. If I come into a church like this, nobody needs to yell at me to obey the Lord. Nobody needs to badger me or hammer me or, you know, condemn me or anything like that. I already want to obey the Lord because the Holy Spirit has brought that into my life as a Christian, as He's brought it into your life as a Christian as well. He's brought that desire into my life. And every person who becomes a Christian, they soon discover that a change has occurred in their lives as it relates to motivation. We find ourselves wanting to do things we had never wanted to do in our whole life. Wanting to go to church without a supernatural power and motivation to go to church, who's going to come here? With how many football games on the television right now? And the NFL station? And then I don't, you can get Comcast or DirecTV or whatever, and how many thousands or hundreds? I mean, these stations are in the hundreds. And not only just what's on television, but the movies that people can access and go out on a beautiful sunny day. Some of you are going, boy, don't sell it too hard. I'm, just make it rough on me. Out there and the things in Yosemite is waiting and all of the things that we could be doing, yet here we are in church. Why? Because God has given us a desire to draw close to Him that's more important to us than all of those other things. And we never had it before we became a Christian. He brought that into our lives. He brings a desire to read the Bible and to learn the Bible. Why would we read the Bible over any other book in life? Over magazines and over newspapers and over everything else because He's brought a desire into our life to learn about God in that place. And so it goes for praying and worshiping the Lord in song and giving up sin and desiring to live a life like Jesus. One day we wake up and now we want to get rid of a sin in our life that's dominated our whole life. We say, where did that come from? I never had any plans of stopping doing that. And now it's the focus of our life to make that change. God brought that into our life. And the reason it's happened is a witness and a testimony to the fact that there's a greater covenant that's in existence today. And it's the operation of the new covenant inside of you. And it's available to us because of our relationship with the Lord. I'll tell you what we enjoy as Christians on a daily basis in terms of God's power and in terms of the desire and motivation that He gives us. It's so priceless. It's so wonderful. Again, the Old Testament saints would probably give anything if they knew what we were going to be experiencing uh, to be able to access this. It is amazing what we have in, in this new covenant. A third way, verse 12, in which our relationship with God through Jesus is superior to those uh, under the Old Testament law is that this is a covenant that's based upon grace. 
And so you notice as he says there in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And what the new covenant provides for us is the promise of mercy for when we fail. Do you realize that in the Old Testament there was no individual sacrifice for intentional sin? None provided. Now, the Day of Atonement, a corporate sacrifice for the nation, not talking about that. But for you as an individual to commit an a intentional sin, there was no provision in the law for what you could do with that sin. Only for unintentional sin. We come into this covenant, and the better of this covenant is a grace that covers all of our sin, whether it's intentional or unintentional, the beauty of God's grace. And Paul wrote in this very vein in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's this covenant. No matter how many sins you've committed, no matter how heinous, no matter how many, no matter what, any pile them up all the way to the sky. When we put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, His grace is greater than all of our sins. Where sin abounds, grace hyperabounds, literally. That's why no one should ever not come to the Lord because of the greatness of your sin. There is no sin, no lifetime of sin, no sins of all of the world all put together that are greater than the life and the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. His grace is greater than all of our sin as we sing. Paul wrote from his own experience, Pharisee of the Pharisees, he knew law. He knew the law of Moses. He knew what it was to try and have a relationship with God on the basis of the old covenant. And he knew what it was to go deep in the new covenant. And he knew there was no comparison between the two. And so he wrote to Timothy in his first epistle, verse 14, and he said, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He says, I never saw, I never f- saw grace, faith, love, these things, like, until I got them in Christ. And this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I give sinners hope, is what Paul was saying. And however, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in Him for everlasting life. Paul is saying to anyone in this room that isn't saved, I am the evidence that God will save anyone. 
Now, as he considers this, he, he can't help but just to begin to praise the Lord. Again, this is coming out of a man who has exhausted, gone deep in the old covenant, and thinking about now what he has in terms of the grace of God in this new covenant, and he can't help but praise the Lord. He says, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And fourth and finally, this covenant is superior, verse 12, because it provides us with a complete forgiveness of our sins. As the writer writes there and says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In other words, in this new covenant, we have a forgiveness that's so complete that the only way that the writer can try to explain it to us is to say that God doesn't remember it. Now, we know that God can't not remember it. And so, but he's trying to make the point, and the idea is that God does not hold our sin against us. That is, once sin has been forgiven, it will never be brought before us again. God will never do that. The matter is settled settled eternally. So the closest thing he can do to explain it is that God has forgotten it because he will never ever make us, uh, confront us with our sin that is under the blood of Christ or, or condemn us for that sin. I think it's helpful to realize that under the old covenant of the Old Testament, there is never the washing away of sin. All the sacrifices that were sacrificed, those were merely to cover sin. It was called a kofar in the Old Testament. All those sacrifices that were sacrificed were simply to cover a sin, and then when I sinned again, there needed to be another sacrifice that would be made in order to cover that sin. There was never the washing away of sin in the way that we know it as Christians. And I think it's wonderful to realize that if God has forgotten our sins, then we're absolutely free to forget them as well. And when something comes up out of our past, into our minds, some sin that's under the blood of Christ, that we can take that thought and say, that's a thought, that condemnation, that memory, that's unworthy of a Christian. That's unworthy of a child of God whose Savior died on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sin. I'm not going to give a minute's time, not five seconds' time, to that sin. God, I give that to you, you who forget my sins, and you do with it as you see fit. But I'm not going to spend a moment of my life, one more moment of my life, thinking about that. And we have the freedom to do that. And we're not being spiritual slackers when we do that. We have God's permission to do that because He knows we need to be able to do that. Think about how many people in this world are just slowly dying, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally under the weight of the guilt of sin. And the problem with past sin is I can't change that. I can't change anything about my past. 
And if God doesn't provide me with an answer for my past sin in terms of forgiveness and then gives me a way to deal with it so that I can function in a, in a new way and, and be restored in a way that looks like how God restores a life, then what hope do I have? And we're going to partake of the symbols of Jesus' body and his blood in just a moment here in the partaking of communion. And I just would like, if, if, I, if we accomplish nothing else in the partaking of communion other than the fact that every single Christian in this room this morning leaves this place so confident of God's forgiveness that every time it comes back, whatever sin we've committed from our past comes back into our mind, that we respond by rejecting it in the light of the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice, and we commit on this Sunday morning in October and say, from this point forward, I'm not going to invest another five seconds in of my life in rummaging through and feeling bad about what Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of and to set me free of. And that's what he longs to do because he knows we need it. All of us need it. And you don't have to be an axe murderer to appreciate what I'm talking about. You can be a person who has sinned kind of in a small way. Other people would look and say, that sin bothers you? Yeah, it bothers you because you have such a tender conscience toward God and toward people and toward other things. It doesn't matter how it works in our lives. It's just God is a forgiving God, and this covenant has supplied us with a complete and total forgiveness. That's what Jesus, that's one of the greater benefits or the greater blessings that we have in this covenant. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. All of this is just waiting for you. It's all there just for the asking God for it. And, and He loves you. He wants every person in the world to enjoy these blessings. And He wants you to personally enjoy them as well. This morning, He will give you through His Word the instruction of how to live a holy life and all you got to do is live an unholy life for a holy life to become attractive ultimately. Say, I'm done with this. I want to live a holy life. And God will not only does He give you the Scriptures, but then He'll give you the power to live the life that's described in these Scriptures and to live a life like Christ. Then He'll give you the motivation, the desire to live a life like Christ. And then He'll begin a grace-based relationship uh, with you, uh, with Him, and a grace that He has for you that's greater than all of your sin, and then He'll bless you with a complete and total forgiveness. He'll give you a fresh start today. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. That's the kind of fresh start that Jesus has provided mankind with because of the price that He paid to do it on that cross of Calvary. 2,000 years ago. Somebody says, how do I receive that? Very simple. The words of Jesus, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, that's you. 
that he gave. That's a gift word. His only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe or trust in Jesus, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you receive it as simple as you receive a gift by saying, God, I put my trust in your heaven-sent Savior. I want the salvation that is found in him. And when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again. And before we partake of the Lord's Supper, because this is for Christians to partake in, is there anyone here right now where you say, I'd like to be saved this morning? I am not. I want this. I want this life. I want to walk with God. You just stand right where it is that you're seated, and I'll pray with you to invite the Lord into your heart, and then you can partake of the Lord's Supper with us in just a moment. Anybody?